Hello and welcome to this podcast. I'm Anju Gangurde, Executive Editor for the APAC region with Script and Pink Sheet. And today I'm joined by Dr. Senthil Sokolingam, who leads IQVIA's biotech operations across Japan and the Asia Pacific, and is also Chief Medical Officer of the APAC region. We're going to discuss a range of trends and opportunities pertaining to the clinical research services segment, and also how some small drug developers are going to market on their own independently. Thank you, Dr. Sokolingam, for your time today. Thanks, Sanjay. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, let me kick off with IQVIA's, you know, just announced launch in the Asia Pacific and Japan region. Tell us what drove this decision, its timing, and also perhaps the broader significance, given that in Japan and Asia Pacific alone, we saw close to 7,000 studies launched by mid and small sized emerging biopharma between 2016 and 20. Thanks, Andrew. It's, it's a good question. Uh, I just want to clarify that, you know, whilst uh, IQVIA Biotech JPEG was recently launched, IQVIA Biotech per se uh, is not uh, a new brand. So IQVIA had acquired Novella Clinical, which was a, a clinical research organization uh, focused around biotech, especially in oncology and other niche indications around 2013-2014 timeframe. And in 2019, uh, it was rebranded as IQVIA Biotech globally with an expanded portfolio to include uh, neurology and internal medicine and medtech uh, and specifically focused around biotech uh, uh, clients. Uh, we also had two biotech delivery arms in the Asia in Asia prior to this launch. Uh, the first was in China, where there, there's been an explosion of uh, local biotechs, uh, small organizations with a lot of key immunology products in the last uh, half a decade or so. And uh, the second is in Australia, uh, focused around Australian and global biotechs wanting to conduct early clinical trials in Australia. And this is driven by, you know, an, aggressive regulatory timeline in Australia and tax incentives offered to uh, emerging biopharma clients who want to run early phase studies there. Now, the question on timing uh, of launch is more of consolidation of the different pieces in uh, Asia Pacific, uh, Japan, Asia Pacific, aligned uh, to uh, our global organization because uh, we see a lot of biotechs outside uh, Asia Pacific coming to Asia to run their clinical programs and wanting to launch their drugs in Asia given the attractive uh, market dynamics in the region. And we thought uh, given the rise of Asia and uh, the globalization of drug development, especially amongst EBPs, especially amongst EBPs, it was a good time to consolidate the organization and launch IQVIA JPEG, IQVIA Biotech JPEG. Uh, thanks, Dr. Sokolingam. That's really interesting. But uh, just to understand this, so do these services also cover biosimilars? Because uh, we, you know, we are hearing about these huge market opportunities coming up. And interestingly, one of your IQVIA colleagues recently said that the next five years could be the coming out party for biosims. And even a week showing will be historic. Uh, of course, he was referring essentially to the US, but uh, broadly that applies to several other markets. 
So the, the short answer is yes, it, it does cover biosimilars, but the, the service is, is focused uh, for emerging biopharma because if you look at biosimilar development, we see uh, large pharmaceutical companies uh, developing biosimilars as well as emerging biopharmas. And we, we will support and continue to support uh, emerging biopharmas or biotechs who are developing biosimilars. Okay. That's 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 nice to know. Uh, just if we can, you know, touch upon the APAC region and Japan. You know, mm -hmm. that's really quite a heterogeneous kind of mix. Mm -hmm. What are some of the key trends you're seeing there in terms of the therapy focus of the younger companies, the younger biotechs, or the EB, uh, the emerging biopharma companies? Are we seeing large clusters of oncology and immunotherapy interest in China? And also, you know, if you can share with us what you're seeing in terms of development partnering and the outsourcing models in these markets and some insights into the scale capabilities. Uh, sure, Andrew, you're right in, in the fact that we are a diverse region and often often get clustered as Asia Pacific, you know, in, in a breath, but we are a diverse region with different stages of mature, with biotechs at different stages of maturity and business objective. So let's focus on uh, biotechs. So if you look at biotechs, we can focus them in, in different ways. So biotechs with, you know, who just want to develop drugs locally. But I, I'd like to focus the discussion on biotech companies with global ambition who want to take the drug outside their home country. And we see these biotechs across the region. So Australia, India, uh, China, uh, they're flourishing and to a certain extent in Japan. Uh, and, and the trends are somewhat similar. I think uh, oncology uh, is, is, is a big trend uh, amongst uh, biotech companies uh, in the region. And we're seeing an increased uh, trend in immunology, particularly around uh, psoriasis and arthritis treatment within the, the region. So these are probably immunology and oncology are two main areas that we're seeing growth uh, in biotechs in. And within oncology, we are seeing innovative oncology drugs, especially cell and gene therapy uh, treatments uh, flourish in the region. Great. Uh, so uh, would you also be touching upon uh, the kind of partnering and outsourcing models you're seeing in some of these markets? Apologize in my excitement of uh, the R&D framework, I had forgotten that question. <laughs> so in, in terms of partnering, outsourcing, uh, yes, you know, th these are all related to scale, scaling capabilities. I, I, I don't have data points on that. I, I'm not able to provide data points on that. But interestingly, uh, we conducted uh, last week a webinar where we had invited a panel discussion on accelerating clinical development. And we had uh, a full JPEG biotech uh, uh, panel. So we had uh, biotechs from India, uh, China, Japan, uh, Southeast Asia, as well as Australia uh, participate as part of the panel. So these are either CEOs or CSOs of uh, these organizations. And one of the questions that uh, was discussed extensively is this, right? So is it's around, you know, the, the talent crunch that exists within the region, the cost of talent within the region, and, and how does one scale? And, and scaling comes from partnering. So most of our, our uh, panelists said, you know, 
for small biotechs, uh, you know, uh, where, you know, it's basically run uh, from an academic institution or, uh, you know, it, it's a small startup uh, organization. Partnership, partnership, partnerships and outsourcing are, are the main ways to move forward, right? So with outsourcing, uh, the outsourcing, you cannot have a single partner. That's that's one of the topic things that came out of this uh, panel, because from from molecule, you know, you almost need several partners with different expertise that help you across your whole journey, right? Uh, in in a clinical development uh, aspect, so from phase one to phase three, you obviously need the help of a CRO. You also need uh, support of a contract manufacturing organization and uh, a commercialization partner. So the, the idea of scaling through uh, outsourcing and partnering with outsourcing uh, companies is the way that most of these biotechs, uh, the smaller biotechs are moving towards. I hope that answers the question, Anju. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, so, but just I'm just curious. Uh, I mean, so do you see some of the you know bigger Q CROs actually uh, probably investing in emerging pharma, uh, you know, or the younger biotechs, say in the long run, because they are dependent to a large extent on some of these you know partnering models. Mm -hmm. I, I won't be. I mean, uh, it would depend on, you know, uh, different CROs and their business models. Uh, uh, because there is a lot of partnering opportunity, not from CRO, but with, uh, you know, different pharmaceutical companies. Right. So because if, if I'm a, if you are a biotech, you know, I would look at maybe three different types of there are three different types of partnering model. One is uh, you partner with an organization that will help you. That will, your R and D, you are independent in R and D, but it will help you scale your commercialization, right? So if you're a small biotech and you know, but you are very R and D focused, you would choose a partner that would uh, help scale your commercialization and globalize your commercialization. On the other hand, you could have a partner where you you have ambitions to commercialize your product, but you you want to partner with a very strong R and D focused uh, commercial organization, like another pharmaceutical company or a global pharmaceutical company, that would uh, support you in globalizing your R and D program, uh, but giving you the uh, the rights to commercialize and pick another commercialization partner if required. And of course, you have the uh, third model where you you uh, partner in both commercialization and uh, in uh, R&D. So you you know you you retain certain rights for certain countries, whereas your partner, your commercial partner, has certain different rights in other countries, and then would then run the clinical and development program in areas where they have the rights. So. I mean, those are in a very simplified manner, you know, some ex some examples of uh, uh, partnerships uh, beyond looking at whether a CRO would invest in your product, right? That's really interesting. So multiple approaches available and probably also evolving. Some of the models are probably yes. still evolving. Yes. Okay. So uh, now let me kind of focus a bit on the pandemic and you know obviously it's impacted many aspects of uh, pharma's operating model including the cl clinical trials bit 
which has also kind of put the spotlight on all things virtual. We are seeing virtual participation of desktop audits, hybrid trials with, you know, in some of the advanced markets, a home nursing component and greater use of patient engagement apps. How are some of the key markets like Japan, China and Singapore, how have they adapted to this so-called new normal? And what's the level of virtual engagement at the regulatory level in these markets? One one thing I can say is, you know, virtualization has I mean, the pandemic has forced us to virtualize uh, and and do things differently. So uh, I think uh, whilst the pandemic, you've seen lockdowns everywhere and uh, and severe restrictions, but drug development has continued at a certain speed and a certain pace, and we've seen that with uh, you know how quickly uh, companies have churned up COVID nineteen data. So, so virtualization has definitely increased. Uh, and, you know, uh, however, in, in the region, so in Japan, Asia Pacific, the, regu the regulatory, it, the virtualization has increased so rapidly, the regulatory framework is still catching up, right? So it's adapting and it is not harmonized. You know, as we discussed uh, earlier, Asia PAC is so diverse and uh, in Japan, Asia Pacific, uh, regulatory frameworks are not harmonized. So when we think about virtualization and digitalization of clinical trials, there are probably four broad elements uh, that uh, I would think about, right, when I think about uh, clinical trials. So element one is, you know, bringing care to the patient versus patient coming to the care center, right? So decentralizing and breaking that that down first. So uh, clinical trials are not focused around sites, but focused around patients. Second is the electronic ability, uh, so e-consent, right? So, uh, uh, and the, the third element is, uh, in, in this whole, it's bringing drugs and intervention to patients. Like, you know, uh, if patients don't come to the hospital, how are drugs uh, and investigational products shipped to the patient? And the last is how are patients recruited, right? How is digital recruitment? How are patients going to be brought into a trial if they're not going to a hospital? So if, if you think about these four elements, uh, these four elements in, in all our countries, some parts of some of these elements exist and have been adapted by regulatory authorities. So if I, if I look at bringing care to the patient, right? So across the board, the adaptation of telemedicine has been high. Right. So uh, we can run clinical trials in many countries where patients don't have to go to the hospital, but the doctor can can just, you know, through video conference uh, do a telemedicine consultation. It may be limited in some countries. I would say, like, for example, telemedicine in China is limited to monitoring progression and not for diagnosis and prescription. So one needs to you know, be physically present for diagnosis and uh, prescription. E-consent, for example, there's no restriction, right? Most, almost all JPEG countries allow, uh, I mean, APEC, Asia Pacific countries allow uh, 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 e-consent. Uh, direct to patient investigational product shipment uh, is, uh, is different across. So, but in many countries, they allow it during the pandemic. So whether or not it remains after the pandemic, it remains to be seen. And, and lastly, direct to patient recruitment. Uh, it, 
across the board, one can advertise and recruit patients through apps, uh, through the phone, uh, online uh, recruitment is allowed. Uh, however, and, and in most of our countries in APAC actually, such solutions already exist. So you don't need to develop something new. There are organizations that can do this. Maybe except not in Singapore, but in most of our countries, uh, these uh, these things are allowed. And when you when you think about digitalization, right? If, if you think beyond the, the clinical trial conduct itself, simple things like contracting, for example, like site contracting, uh, because of the pandemic, a lot of sites have accepted uh, uh, DocuSign or you know, e-signatures in contracting. And this has reduced contracting timelines tremendously because previously a hard copy needs to be couriered from a head office of a company somewhere to their office in a country. And then that needs to be couriered to a site. And then in the site, there are a few days before you get everyone's wet signature, and then it needs to be couriered back. And then, and that's when the contracting, pro it's around a five days to two weeks contracting process. And now a document can be sent for DocuSign, concurrent DocuSign, and it can be finished in 20 to 30 minutes. And, and there are many smaller elements of digitalization of the entire conduct of clinical trials that, that we are seeing during the pandemic. I hope that all these efficiencies continue after the pandemic as well. Thank you, Dr. Sokolingam. It's really fascinating how uh, digitalization uh, has been kind of turbocharged during the pandemic. And uh, as you said, you know, uh, hope some of these efficiencies uh, stick around for the longer term. If I can now shift gears, you know, to some of the development and commercialization aspects. Uh, we are seeing smaller drug uh, developers going to market solo, targeting niche areas, cancers, and with limited budgets. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, you know, recently IQVIA data suggests that emerging biopharma companies developed and launched 40% of all new drugs that hit the market in the US in 2020. Could you share some broad insights into these, you know, evolving commercial models and has digitization to some extent democratized innovation since you know uh, with a digital launch model maybe uh, drugs with limited sales expectations or smaller indications can actually uh, make good and come to market easily uh, thanks thanks for that andrew it's it's a it's a difficult question commercial question for a chief medical officer but i will attempt to <laughs> answer the question. Uh, so I, I think digital launch models are a reality. Regard, I mean, at least for the next for last year and this year, uh, given given uh, the pandemic, right? So sales and scientific engagement with uh, uh, healthcare providers have virtualized to a certain extent, actually completely allowing uh, broader outreach and faster feedback and uh, you know, faster adaptation of uh, uh, education and understanding the commercial uh, value of a product. We've also seen uh, an increased request. So as a company, you know, we, we are involved in uh, commercialization uh, within IQVIA. There are departments that do that. And we've seen an increase in requests in virtual advisory board, virtual roundtable discussions. 
And uh, in fact, entire conferences uh, like ESCO and ESMO have become virtual, allowing for larger participation and engagement across countries and continents. So I, I would say like uh, from a democratization perspective, it is uh, democratized uh, healthcare providers access to information, right? So you don't need a flight ticket, you don't need a sponsorship, uh, you, you know, you can participate in almost any conference today uh, in any part of the world uh, virtually. And, and you know, that's 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 a big, uh, big change uh, to how healthcare providers consume data and he how healthcare providers uh, engage with uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies and biotechs. Right. And and this perhaps to a certain extent, uh, you know, helps them make more data driven decisions and helps gain more exposure to innovative uh, therapeutics, which are, you know, being driven out of biotechs. Right. And uh, and, and I, I think this this is sort of one thing that will change uh, the, the way uh, companies interact with physicians and companies commercialize their product uh, in the future. That's really interesting. And um, uh, I mean, if, just pardon me, but uh, just sticking with the commercialization aspect, because there's so much interesting data out there. In fact, one of your IQVIA papers uh, indicated that over half of the brands, you know, tend to miss their first year sales forecast. And of those, just 20% really make any kind of recovery. And most striking is that compared to historical launches, brands that have been launched into a COVID impacted market, they experience as much as a 75% greater negative impact on uptake. So what really is happening there? And uh, what are some of the complex new market realities that young biotechs and emerging biopharma companies need to consider while you know, heading towards commercialization in a pandemic hit world? I, I think, uh... I, I think similar to, I mean, this is uh, my, my opinion. I think uh, similar to uh, what we discussed in virtual clinical trials, where uh, trials are decentralizing from hospital focus to patient, right? Care around patient. I think to a certain extent, that also will, will happen in, uh, in, in the area of commercialization. Because due to COVID-19, you know, uh, one, I mean, it's fair to say that access to healthcare and, you know, it has become impacted in, in countries where there's been COVID-19 flare-up. People are, you know, people don't go to hospital as much uh, because, you know, they are afraid of infection. And, and you know, the whole patient journey is evolving. Right. So I think the old patient journey for, for a disease would be general practitioner. You could actually draw out how someone uh, who has chest pain interacts with the healthcare system or how someone who has uh, uh, altered bowel movements, for example, interacts with the healthcare system and how that eventually leads to a colorectal cancer diagnosis. But that is evolving. The patient journey is evolving. And uh, I, I would think healthcare companies need to need to stay ahead of the patient journey or understand the patient journey to understand how to commercialize their product. Uh, and and I think that, that that understanding is 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 transforming and, and changing uh, in 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 a pandemic setting. Uh, 
that's a really important uh, stuff that you're referring to because uh, you know typically emerging biotechs and young companies are kind of betting the ranch when they are you know going uh, solo into the market yeah uh, so finally uh, dr sokalingam i mean if i can just you know pick your brains on what is what in your view is the next big thing in the clinical research segment and uh, what's the kind of role you see for ai and machine learning to optimize trials and probably other aspects of the development process I, I wish I had a crystal ball I could look into for the next <laughs> Maybe I'll focus on, you know, uh, artificial intelligence, right? I, I think I, I think there's a huge role for artificial intelligence in uh, in in uh, in the world of drug development and identifying, you know, life-saving uh, molecules uh, that can help people. Uh, it, you know, I, I think AI can make major contributions. Uh, you know, for incorporating uh, of the developed drug in correct dosage and op optimize that dosage, right? So I, I, I think as in the last uh, five years, we've seen development of platforms uh, that can look at molecules uh, which are created uh, in the lab and identify which of these are a high probability uh, you know, for, for development, right? And uh, so, you know, from, from bench to, to market, we are seeing uh, AI come into play. So we're seeing AI in drug design, we are seeing AI in uh, pharmacology, in chemical synthesis, in drug reporting and drug screening, right? So we are, we are seeing that whole paradigm of uh, identification of molecules uh, by technology. And uh, so during the panel last week, which I spoke about earlier, uh, one of uh, the, the panelists uh, that was in the panel also spoke about how they as a company uh, identify drugs for in licensing. So they usually run the molecule and the, the preclinical data through a platform, which then gives the platform gives them a probability of success in development for that molecule. And that's how they pick the molecule. Uh, we are also seeing uh, AI in, uh, in, in, you know, so once it enters a clinical trial, we are seeing artificial intelligence uh, being used to uh, identify high-risk populations of patients to help with uh, uh, identifying patient groups. We are seeing AIs in diagnostic, diagnostics, as we've seen in uh, uh, NGS or in uh, next generation sequencing to identify uh, mutations and uh, genotype of different cancers. And we're seeing until the end, uh, you know, in real world as well, we are seeing in real world research. So once the drug reaches the market, we are seeing uh, technology help uh, in patient management, right? So we're seeing that across the board. Some of the challenges around that is the, the data that goes into the uh, uh, you know, the models, artificial intelligence model. And, you know, Asia is developing in the sense that the electronic healthcare databases are improving. Uh, hospitals are coming up with governance uh, on, on, you know, how to uh, manage access, how to manage analytics uh, around electronic uh, databases. And we're seeing greater interest uh, in, in you know, hospitals and in academic research institutes on developing AI algorithms and models uh, for drug development as well as for patient care. 
So that that's that's an exciting uh, space. Uh, nervous for some because people think that oh AI means you lose jobs and you know, doctors become uh, are not needed, but that's not true. I, I think uh, AI is like a new stethoscope or the new echocardiogram, right? So uh, when when echocardiogram came, you know, cardiologists didn't lose their job. They they became they became even better at their job, and and that's how I see AI for us working in drug development, for physicians, and more importantly for patients, where you know they get diagnosed better, uh, they get the best possible care that that comes their way. That's fascinating. AI, the new stethoscope, and so clearly lots of efficiencies are probably to be gained there. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Sokolingam. Thank you so much for your time and for some great insights. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much. A pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me.